Welcome to Put Your Numbers to Work podcast. I am excited to connect here you with my friend Tammy Ledbetter Priest from Blasic and Vetterling. Blasic and Vetterling is the leading CPA firm that serves nonprofits, 20 years of serving tax exempt organizations. And Tammy's been with them for 16 years, specializing in helping nonprofits that receive government funding and make sure they're in compliance under the, the rules to, for that funding. Blasic and Vetterling specializes in auditing and assurance services, as well as tax and compliance from small businesses, small nonprofits to private foundations. So uh, she's also on the board of a lot of nonprofits. And, and I know Tammy from being on the board of the Houston CPA Society. So Tammy, welcome to Put Your Numbers to Work. Thank you, Stephen. I am very glad to be here. So uh, I, I want to share with our listeners some of the lessons and, and, the, and the issues that nonprofits are facing right now in this crazy time that we've got, this global pandemic, and understand what, what's going on in the nonprofit community. What's, on their, what's their state of mind? What are the concerns that they have that you're helping your clients deal with? Well, Stephen, you know, I have to tell you that while we serve uh, all of the different types of not-for-profits, there are some that have been really, really significantly impacted by uh, COVID-19. Uh, you know, the, the direct service providers at a time when, um, you know, there's, there is concern over resources, their needs uh, of the participants have increased. You know, I have one client that provides counseling services and they are at 120% capacity because wow. this is stressful times. Um, you know, other organizations that are providing direct services like food, uh, the food pantries. I've heard of double and triple response to uh, needs. Now, thankfully, there's also been a response from the community where I've also heard in that particular case of increased donations of food. So, you know, it's just, it's just a very concerning time. How do you, how do you deliver food when we're now all virtual? I mean, you know, there wasn't a lot of time to plan for this ramp up. No, you're so right. And that's just another concern is, is how to protect your people at a time when you've got this increased capacity. In the case with food, you know, that's very hard to do without and, and maintain the social distancing. Um, you know, of course, we see them. Uh, many of the volunteers are putting food in the trunks or the back seats. Uh, people have had to get really creative uh, with counseling services. How do you provide counseling in a remote environment? How do you make sure that all of your contracted professionals or your employees are set up to deliver these services? Uh, it's been something that people had to, they really didn't have the luxury of planning. And I'm actually very proud of our not-for-profit community yeah. because the way everybody has just responded has just been very impressive. Um, across the board. People have just come to the table with fresh ideas and I think we're probably going to see some long-term effects in a positive manner out of this. But uh, on the initial inset, uh, start of this, it's been pretty interesting how creative we've had to get. Yeah, and, and, and Blasic and Vetterling is known, has built a reputation for serving Houston's largest and most well-known organization. So, you know, what, what are you seeing like You've, you serve all, a lot of museums and the big performing arts organizations. You know, what are you seeing with those, you know, 
brand name organizations that are that are you know we count on for our social fabric well you know that's an interesting thing as well unlike the direct service providers these organizations are not able to provide services right and they at the same time many of them like the performing arts have already uh, invested a significant amount of money in planning for their season and they've had to cancel their season um, many of them survive almost entirely off of ticket sales, the museums. Mm -hmm. How do you open the doors for um, providing these services and maintaining 25% capacity? Uh, it's just been a really, really challenging time for those organizations as well. And even as we open up, um, it's, it's increasingly uh, difficult to figure out how you're going to um, start providing those services. You know, you've got the, the need to balance the cost of provision of services. Um, and it's just a really interesting time for all of these organizations. Yeah, and you know, one of the big questions I'm sure is, you know, will the economy get back in time for donors to be able to contribute? Oh, that's for sure. And that's a concern that is almost across the board. Um, you know, you, you've got not only the impact of the shutdown on our in our state and in our area uh, and that's impact on the economy but you know houston is so oil driven and so many of the oil and gas um, companies have had layoffs or have had reduced reduction of hours and you know it who knows how long that's going to last so there's a lot of angst out there across the board with the not-for-profits as to what's going to happen with uh, contributions for the upcoming year. So how do they respond? How do you keep employees and keep your services going and keep the company viable? Well, you know, thankfully, the government quickly recognized um, the need, uh, not for just for, not only for not-for-profits, but for all organizations. And they stepped in fairly quickly with some programs one thing they've done, um, now I'm not a, a tax accountant nor um, a tax person, so I can't really speak to the details, but I do know that they have encouraged giving by making it uh, possible to have a deduction on your tax return, uh, even for those that just file the short form of their standard deduction oh, really? um, for contributions. It's a limited amount, but that encourages. Uh, also, for those of us that have to follow the long form and, and don't take the standard deduction, there's been some changes in the cap as to how much can be deducted. So thankfully, there is some encouraging news out there for those of us that, that want to continue to support the community. They also uh, quickly uh, came out with the Families First Act, and that was to prevent, uh, protect those employees that were significantly impacted and require that they have extended leave. Uh, if you've been directly impacted yourself or you're having to care for a family member uh, that has COVID-19, um, you know, and then they, everybody has probably heard the most about the payroll protection program, but that came out designed to help you retain your employees and not have layoffs. Um, it's known as the PPP Act. Um, it's available up to $10 million and it's basically uh, designed to fund payroll primarily for two and a half months. Uh, and then lastly, they came out with the 
uh, economic injury disaster loan, which provides longer term funds um, at a very low interest rate that's not quite as restrictive as the payroll protection program. You know, uh, the Family First Act, there hasn't been a lot spoken about that, right? The PPP is getting all the press. Um, I was pleasantly surprised, you know, our employees, yeah, CPAs, we're essential, right? The state, the Texas society has deemed that we are there to help American small businesses and nonprofits weather the storm. And one of my executive assistant has a, uh, a nine-year-old and she just sent an email out saying that we're eligible for some childcare credits um, because you have, the schools are closed. And I, you know, there's a lot there for the Family First Act that I'm glad you mentioned that because I don't think that's gotten enough credit. Well, and it, it, you know, the, the thing is people just need to know that that's available. There are some links on our website to additional information on that program. I'm not real versed with all of the factors um, that, that are available and the, the resources that are available under that. But you're right, it, it does have um, some benefits for those that are impacted because they are not allowed to work because they have to take care of their children. Tell me about, give us the website address. So if people want to go get the resources that you guys have put out there, how would they find it? It's at bvcpa.com. Oh, that's a great URL. BV, as in Blasic and Vetterlink, cpa.com. Fantastic. So this was confusing, right? This whole process was difficult and lots of challenges. You know, how, how do you know if you are going to be in compliance with the rules? Like, is there any, any guidance that we've gotten around the, you know, the, the single audit or the, the um, economic uncertainty rules? You know, any guidance there that you can share with our listeners? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because that has <laughs> probably been the question most posed uh, over the course of the last several weeks. Uh, and that's a, a, a multi-pronged question. I'll address the single audit question first because there were so many questions as to whether or not this was going to be subject to single audit. And tell some people, tell people what, what, what is a single audit, just so everybody knows. So a single audit is a federal compliance audit for those that receive certain types of federal funding. Uh, single audit came out many years ago and it was designed so that if you received multiple types of federal funding, all of the different funding organizations would not require separate audits. And hence the term single audit, such that there is a process uh, where the larger programs get a term being audited, but they're not necessarily all audited at once. It is a very, um, it's, a, it, it's a fairly stringent audit it goes above and beyond a financial statement audit. And for those that have not been through the process, it can be scary. And that's something I've done for more than 20 years. So uh, while I have utmost respect for the process, uh, you just have to know what your compliance requirements are and adhere to them. Uh, but it was a very scary proposition for a lot of organizations. We just within the last 10 days or so received an answer and that is that the payroll protection program will not be subject to a single audit. Wow, that's big. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, the, the other confusions, just the application process itself was crazy confusing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there was yeah. all of these pressures 
to quickly apply under the pressure that the money was going to run out. And in fact, it did. Uh, so much so that Congress had to provide a second round of funding. And various, you, you made the application through the banks. There were subsequently allegations that not all banks handled the applications equally. Um, you know, there were um, all of the different legislation that has come out has been fairly difficult to navigate. Uh, the rules have been fast evolving. Uh, thankfully, the SBA, who Payroll Protection uh, Program is funded through, has come out with daily webcast to update you on the fast evolving regulations. Um, and there's even been some discussion as to whether some of the, the hard and fast rules um, that have been promulgated so far are going to be relaxed somewhat. So I would just like encourage you to stay involved if you receive this funding, stay involved with looking at those webcasts and um, you know, kind of stay atop of those, all of those rules and regulations that are changing so fast. And this is where your CPA really comes in handy. So, so you know, who's going to determine if you're in compliance? Like, so, so you know, if it's if the single audit now is off the table, but you're still going to have to show economic uncertainty. You're going to have to show that you use the money for its intended purpose, right? 75% payroll and 25% for rent, utilities, and a limited number of other things. Who's who do we have to answer to? Well, you know, that is an interesting question too, Stephen. And it's, <laughs> it, it's kind of an, an interesting answer uh, because you make application through your bank and it's actually the bank that will determine whether or not the expenses that you submit qualify. Uh, it's been said that they have a little bit of a vested interest in that they want to be reimbursed. So I don't necessarily have an opinion on that, but that's mm -hmm. who the SBA has... Um, made um, responsible for determining compliance. Now, SBA, will you're not subject to a single audit, but you are still subject to an audit. Uh, SBA has said that they will audit all organizations that receive more than $2 million. And if you receive less than that, you're subject to an audit. They haven't said how those selections will be made. I suspect it will be sim similar to IRS audits where maybe it's based on some particular factors that they think are more high risk. Maybe there will be a, a random selection. Not really sure about that. But all of these funds are subject to audit. Um, you know that the economic uncertainty has really caused a lot of angst because a then there's all, questions. yeah. And there's been some discussion about um, that there's, it's going to be published as to which organizations receive the funding and the amount. And in my world, the not-for-profit world, there's organizations that might have some really large board-designated endowments, or they may have really large endowments that are not available uh, because they are uh, perpetually restricted for a specified use. Or maybe it's an organization that has a large general endowment. You know, those endowments are subject to regulations called TUPMIFA. And, you know, organizations, um, I think the guidance just says access to working capital. Capital. Well, then, you know, what does that even mean? Does that mean if you have a large line of credit, that's your access to working capital? 
Well, in a time where you're uncertain as to future contributions, is that still economic uncertainty? I don't have an answer for any of those questions, but it has really caused a lot of angst. And I think last week the, um, the SBA said that if you feel like you got the funds and you are really not suffering from an economic uncertainty, that you should refund them and that they'll give you, we'll start to get some guidance. Uh, they actually extended the due date to refund the money from May 17th to May 14th, and still no guidance has come. So it's going to be right. difficult. Um, it, it's, it's clearly a challenging time. So, so if you get PPP, payroll protection, and then you get the EIDL, you know, how do you, how do you coordinate? Like there's, you're not allowed to double dip, right? So, so what do you, what do you, how do you track all this? What's the difference well, between what's the difference between the two? Well, PPP is specifically for 75% of it must be used for payroll. And then there's specific guidelines on how the other 25% can be used. It also has a very short time period for use, uh, two and a half months. The question has been, when does that start? I think we now have that defined as when you receive the funds. But then there's lots of questions as to whether or not it can be accrued. If you receive the funds on one day, you make payroll the next day uh, for a payroll period that was two weeks before. I don't have necessarily all the answers on that, uh, but that's what PPP is for. The EIDL is for generally more, um, not subject to so many restrictions. It's also available to fund uh, your operations and, and uh, capital costs over a longer period of time. It is a loan. Uh, it's subject to a fairly low interest rate. It can be paid out over, I believe it's 30 years. Unlike wow. the, P the PPP is originally a loan, um, has a low interest rate. It's 1%. Uh, I believe it's two years. The first six months, both principal and interest are deferred automatically. Uh, and then the payout period is two years. But it, there's also a provision that if you spend it in accordance with the qualified expenditure guidelines, then it is subject to be forgiven. Um, and so that's kind of the differences between the two types of funding. Okay, so, so this is relatively complex, you know, a brand new source of funds and there's not a lot of guidance and, you know, in all... You know, my, my view, regardless of your political leadings, I think this, the Treasury Secretary has done an amazing job just injecting cash into the economy at lightning speed in a bipartisan way. But, you know, that means that they didn't have time to figure things out. And so how do you account for all this? What, what, what's the debits and the credits, right? Like what, what should a nonprofit, you know, treasurer or, or controller be doing? Well, you know, that's a, a good question. And one we've had many, many questions about from our clients and those that we serve, you know, a loan is a loan. Uh, and initially until you receive forgiveness, even the PPP is a loan. So basically when the money comes in, you debit cash and you credit a liability, uh, not a short-term liability, but, but uh, debt. In the instance of the EIDL, that will be a longer term debt. Uh, so you'll have a current and a long-term uh, portion of that. Uh, and even the PPP, if it's not forgiven, it's over two years, so it will be as well. Now, you also, want, in the case of a PPP, 
you have a conditional contribution. And if this should happen so that your year end uh, arises before you're actually given uh, forgiveness, then you would need to disclose that as a conditional contribution. Uh, now, when the contribution comes in and you um, have actually got certification of uh, that you had qualifying expenditures and it's going to be forgiven, then you will use that to um, pay down your, your debt and that would be your debit and your credit will be a, a contribution that would be recognized. So anybody who's got a June 30th fiscal year end is going to have to deal with that. It's going to be interesting to the extent that it's material. I always like to throw that little caveat. Yeah, yeah. right. Thank you for that. Um, so this has really been great. Just one last question. What other questions are your clients asking of you and your management team? Like what are the, what are the, you know, the things that are different because it's now this virtual world? Well, you know, that's probably um, the most, aside from this, how, how to deal with the available funding. The other question that's come up multiple times is what does the impact of this new remote world have on one's internal controls? And of internal course, control. wow, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I never thought about that. That's a good audit term for you, right? Yes. And, and of course, for our clients, we have to maintain independence, which basically means we cannot help you design your internal controls, but we are always available to our clients to, for them to bounce ideas off of us. And I like to always remind everyone that they need to keep the overarching principle of assets and the control of those assets separate in separate hands. Um, you just having to get creative. I also want to encourage people to document when their controls changed, document what you're doing so that if you are being audited, it's auditable. Um, and um, just kind of, be aware that, that you have to keep some kind of controls. I know everyone, especially in the not-for-profit world, um, first instinct is to provide services. And yes, you need to provide services, but you need to be um, cautious in how you do that so that you do maintain your accountability and you are good stewards of the money that has been provided to you by the community. So that's probably the thing that we've helped people walk through the most aside from all of these fast evolving issues with the, the guidance. So let's, let's spend a minute on that. So, so I can just imagine, you know, what we're seeing with our clients is if you had a, a receptionist who was opening the mail and then they log the checks in a, in a cash receipts journal and then they give the total, the checks to a bookkeeper to go make the deposit, you've separated the duties of, of cash receipts and the deposit. And then a third person would be recording or reconciling the bank account, right? That's your, your approval, your record keeping and your reconciliation separated. What if you got one office manager who's now going to the bank and open, I mean, going to the office once a week, opening the mail and go making the deposits. Is there any guidance there that they can, what, what should people be thinking about? How do we separate duties when we're not all together? Well, you know, I would encourage you to think of a few things. Now, the person that you choose to have access to that undeposited cash um, is important, especially in the not-for-profit world when you're dealing with non-reciprocal transactions. It's really hard to tell when a contribution goes missing uh, because there's not the offsetting uh, valuation that would be tied to the revenue. 
So it's, yeah. it's more challenging even than the for-profit community. But you never want the person that's in charge of soliciting contributions to be the one that goes and selects, I'm sorry, picks up the money and makes the deposit. Nor do you want the person that is maintaining your general ledger to be the one that goes and makes the deposit. Other than that, you're just going to have to get creative. Really good advice. We're recommending to clients they implement bill.com because typically you have check writing, you know, up to a certain dollar amount, you know, over a thousand dollars, the treasurer has to sign or over 5,000, the second signature. And that's very difficult when people are not all together. And so by automating it and implementing a electronic bill payment, you can have a workflow that makes it easy to say, okay, here's a rule. If it's over a thousand bucks, it now has to go for second signature. So this is That's really an excellent great. idea. Excellent idea. Steve, what kinds of assistant are, assistance are your clients requesting? Well, for right now, it's about the PPP. And we've got this PPP calculator where you can go in and enter in all your expenses and your payroll, and your rent and utilities. And it calculates how much of it is eligible to be a grant. And so you can right. stay on top of that. It calculates, you know, how many FTEs do you have, full-time employees versus what the base period was. The second thing is cash flow forecasting is just making sure that you can manage through this process and beyond because the PPP is going to run out. And then right. the last is really helping, you know, a lot of non our clients are going through big, big decisions about cuts. So we're going through scenario planning and figuring out what's the break even point. If our, if our, if our revenue is down 10%, what do we need to do in order to not dip into reserves? If it's 20%, if it's 40%, and that right now, that's the biggest the challenge is, you know, how do you make those decisions with some data and not just gut because the board wants data. Right. Well, Tammy, this was really great. I appreciate you giving us your time. Tell us how, how can somebody reach you if they've got more questions? You know, tell us again the website and, and if they want to learn more about this topics we talked about, how do they find, find you? Okay. Well, there's multiple resources available on our website under COVID-19 um, tab at the top. Uh, our website is BV, as in Blasic Veteran, BVCPA.com. My email address is Tammy, T-A-M-I dot Priest, P-R-E-E-C-E -E -E, at BVCPA.com. And I also can be reached through LinkedIn and under that I'm Tammy Davis Priest CPA. Now, I look forward to helping anybody that reaches out. Well, we're very lucky to have you. Blasic and Vetterling is recognized nationally. I think Caroline Vetterling is known for having written the book, right? Literally written the book that most nonprofit CPAs use as a guide. So we appreciate you guys giving us your time and sharing your knowledge with our audience. Thank you so much. I do want to make a correction there. Otherwise, I will be remiss. Okay. Caroline is known in the not-for-profit community. That is for sure. She's been doing this for more years than I want to say um, in a recorded session. But um, Jody Blazik is actually the one that's probably written nine or ten publications. Um, and so she's the one that most people think of as the author. Whereas Caroline has taught for over the many, many years and is certainly known in the arena as an educator, but Jody's the one that actually has published books. That's helpful. Yeah, you guys are the leaders. So thank you for sharing your time and sharing your knowledge. Thank you. My pleasure.